Good morning, church. Good to be with you today. It's good to be together this morning. I want to add just a couple things to Gabby's announcements. Not to say that she didn't do a great job, but I wanted to say these, these looms that we're going to have in the lobby the next few Sundays are, uh, I want to give you sort of an accurate picture of this. They're 10 feet by 20 feet. So there'd be these huge tapestries of our stories woven together with God's story. And then we're obviously going to have a chance to display those um, at the end of the series. So please um, be a part of it. We need all of us to make, make that a reality. I, um, also, uh, Gabby's parents being here from Mexico is such a special thing. And um, uh, just some of you couldn't see them. So we had a picture. Do we have that picture of Gabby and her folks? So you'll recognize them in the lobby. There they are. Um, anyway. Anyway, welcome to you guys. Good to have you with us. Uh, welcome to the Cedar Mill family. We're weird, but we're fun. Hey, grab your Bibles this morning. We're going to dive right in. Uh, this is our last Sunday uh, in our series we've been calling The Journey. As we've journeyed with Jesus and his disciples through Luke, we're in Luke 11 today. If you didn't bring your Bible, grab one out of the pew rack. In front of you, turn to Luke chapter 11, towards the end of the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, if you hit John or Acts, you've gone too far. Uh, as you find your place there, let me catch you up a little bit with what's happening in Luke's story, where we are. Jesus and his disciples have been on the move. They are traveling together now, and Jesus is giving instruction as they go. In fact, it tells us back in, in chapter 9, in verse 51, back at the beginning of our series, Luke says, As the time approached for him, that's Jesus, to be taken up to heaven... Uh, for his ministry on earth here to be complete, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So he's headed for Jerusalem. He's, he's headed for this thing that's coming, this event that is going to take place once he gets to Jerusalem. And uh, when he gets there, Jesus is, is going to die. He is going to rise. He's going to defeat death. He's going to atone for our sins. He's once again going to make it possible, make a way for us to have right relationship with God. Set all things right again. That's what's going to happen. That's where he's headed. That's what is coming. And last week we talked about how this thing that he's bringing, that he's ushering in, that he's offering to us once more is referred to as the kingdom of God, the dome in which God is king. And it's now available for free to you and me, the sphere where God's will and ways reign and rule. And and just to, to, to remind you that this is, in fact, the gospel that Jesus preaches... I want to turn your attention to Mark chapter 1. And you don't have to turn there. I'll, I'll just read it for you. But th- at the very beginning of Mark's gospel, at the beginning of Mark's story, where he tells the story of Jesus, he records these words from the lips of Jesus himself. This is Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. It says, Jesus went into Galilee, it's a region in the north where he's from, proclaiming the good news of God, proclaiming the gospel. And here's what he says. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Here's the good news. The time has come. Now's the time. The kingdom of God has come near. You see, the good news, according to Jesus, is not just that the kingdom exists, that it's out there somewhere. It's not just that the kingdom will be available to you someday. At some point, you'll be able to be a part of the kingdom. The good news, according to Jesus, is that the kingdom of God has come near. Now, in Him, it is fully available and utterly accessible, even to people who never thought they would find it. 
Even to people who never thought they could enter it, now through Jesus, it's available to them. It's available to you. It's available to me. But the question is, how do I enter it? How do I step into this kingdom? How do I embrace this kingdom? How do I receive this free gift of the kingdom that Jesus comes to bring? Well, listen to what Mark tells us that Jesus says about this. Same, same verse I just read. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, the good news. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. And then he says these words. Repent and believe the good news. You want to enter the kingdom? You want to experience the kingdom? You want to step into this kingdom that has now come in me? Repent and believe the good news. I've titled today's message, Repentance Required. And, uh, I know that this conjures up some images for some of you. Most of the time when we talk about repentance, most of us have one of two images. We either have this, this image of, of hate-filled, real judgmental Christians holding signs or sort of beating us over the head with the Bible, condemning us, judging us, calling us to repent. Right? Maybe some of you have even heard messages from real angry pastors with deep gravelly voices urging you, yelling at you, calling you to repent, right? So there's this sort of meanness that's associated with repentance. Or, or there's this, this association with repentance that it's a feeling, that I've done something wrong, that I've, I've, I've sinned or I've stepped out of bounds or I've crossed the line or I've broken God's rules and now I should or maybe I even do just feel real bad about that. God, I feel so repentant. I'm so sad. I'm so disappointed in myself. I'm, I'm sure that you're disappointed in me. And so repentance becomes this feeling that we have that, that drives us to say, I'll, I'll never do it again, God. I promise. A- until next time, right? Um, But neither, I believe, are what Jesus longs for. I do not think that is what Jesus is speaking of when he talks about repentance. You see, the word repentance actually has nothing to do with feelings. It has nothing to do with judgment or guilt. The word repent or repentance is a call to change your mind. It's a call to think in a new way. It's a call to realign your mind and your life with something new, to actually change your allegiances, to say, you know, what am I committed to? What have I pinned my hopes and dreams to? Where do I find my purpose and meaning and life identity? And and the call to repent is to say, "Don't, don't form your allegiances here with the things of the world, but instead change, turn away from those things and Commit to Christ. Find your identity in Christ. Give your allegiance to Christ. Find meaning and purpose and hope and safety and security. Not in the things of this world, but in the things of the kingdom, in Jesus Christ himself. That's the call. Change your allegiance. This is how how Dallas Willard, uh, the author of the book The Divine Conspiracy, Uh, translates Mark chapter 1, these words of Jesus, where he talks about the kingdom and stepping into it. This is one of the best paraphrases of these two verses I've ever heard. And And it speaks so deeply to what I really believe the true gospel is. This is Mark 1, according to Dallas Willard. The verse I just read a moment ago. Willard translates it this way. All the preliminaries have been taken care of. And the rule of God is now accessible to everyone. 
Review your plans for living and base your life on this remarkable new opportunity. Hear that again. All the preliminaries have been taken care of. The death and resurrection of Christ have made the way. It's all handled for you. You don't have to earn this path on your own. All the preliminaries have been taken care of. And the rule of God is now accessible to everyone. Even a rotten, wretched sinner like you. Uh, That's that's extra for me. Um, (laughs) Review your plans for living. Think about that. All the plans you have for what your life should look like and what you should do and what you should accomplish and how you should live. Review those in the light of this new, amazing, remarkable opportunity offered to you in Christ that you could live a life in and for and as a part of the kingdom. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. You see, in our passage today, the very end of this series, Jesus is going to say, don't miss it. He's going to call us. He's going to challenge us. He's going to urge us. Do not miss it. Do not miss this opportunity to step into the kingdom, this pathway into the kingdom. Do not miss this new remarkable opportunity to live the full, rich, abundant, purposeful, empowered, blessed life that God offers you through, through repentance. Through repentance. This is Luke chapter 11. Here's What Luke tells us, um, verses 29 through 36. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man, will Jesus himself, be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body is also full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body also is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. If you were here last week, you'll remember that Jesus has just driven a demon out of a man, a demon that caused him to be mute. It was a a mute demon. And when he does this, the crowd that witnesses this exorcism is, is amazed. They're filled with awe because in the first century, they believed that the most difficult demons to remove from someone, to pull out of someone, were the demons who caused muteness because the handle, the tool that you would use to, to extract the demon out of someone's life was their name. You'd get the name of the demon and then you could pull the demon out. But when the person is mute, you can no longer get the name. So people believed demons that caused muteness were very difficult or darn near impossible to drive out. So in this moment, in in this miracle, Jesus has essentially demonstrated to the crowd that he has power unlike they have ever seen before. And some of the crowd kind of scrambling, some of the crowd that's against Jesus says, they say, well, here's the reason. Here's how he displays such phenomenal power. He's from Satan. He's from Beelzebul, 
right? He gets his power from the power of darkness. We talked about that last week. But then in verse 16, it says this. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. And, and last week, Jesus responded to the first you know, accusation. This week, he'll respond to this. Jesus will respond today to those who are hesitant to fully embrace who he is. He'll talk to, to those of us who are hesitant to fully step into and embrace and receive and align our lives with the kingdom he offers. He'll call us today into repentance. And he, and he rebukes this crowd, this, this testing, we need another sign crowd, and he rebukes them with fairly harsh language. Language we don't often hear from Jesus, or at least we don't in Sunday school. He says, this is a wicked generation. It asks, it asks for a sign, but none will be given it except for the sign of Jonah. Now, there's a debate amongst scholars, I'll just tell you about, uh, what is the sign of Jonah actually is. Scholars have different ideas. What is this sign of Jonah that's being referred to here? Um, is it the same sign? Is it the sign that says, you know, Jonah was in the belly of the giant fish for three days and then he came out and in the same way Jesus will be in the tomb? He, he will be in, the, in the, be- the belly of death for three days and then he will rise again? Some scholars say that's the sign of Jonah referred to here. Other scholars say, no, if you actually read the passage and you look at what's being said here, the sign of Jonah is the message of repentance that Jonah preached to the Ninevites and now Jesus gives a similar sign, offers the same message of repentance to the crowds of his day. So the same way the Ninevites received this sign, this message of repentance, so do the crowds in Jesus' day. And personally, I come down kind of on both sides. I I, I think he's actually referring to both. He's saying there's going to be this ultimate sign that I am the Savior, that I am the Messiah, that I am the one who brings the kingdom. And it's going to happen soon in Jerusalem when I die and rise again and break the powers of evil and darkness and death and despair. That's going to be a sign to you. But, but I believe Jesus is also saying at the same time, the miracles and the message right now that you are seeing before your very eyes, they should be enough for you. They should be enough for you to place your faith and trust and hope fully in me. I mean, if I can drive a demon that is mute out of a man, then you should be able to understand that I come from God. In verse 33, Jesus says, No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come may see the light. And in other places, Jesus uses this kind of language to refer to us. He's like, let your light shine. Don't put it under a bowl. And so we read it here and we're like, what's he talking about? In this instance, Jesus is actually referring to himself. He's saying, you know, God didn't send me, his son, the light of the world into the world to hide me or to sort of keep me secret from you or to keep me kind of hidden away as a mystery. God's not into hide and seek. He's not into this game where, you know, we'll see if you can find me or not. Some people think that's the way God works. That, like, there's this sort of cosmic game that he's playing on earth and some people happen to find him in the game of hide and seek and others don't, but he's kind of hiding. We play, you know, we play this game in my family. Um, We call it hide and seek in the dark. It's one of our favorite family games. And uh, we started the game when my kids were younger and everyone got a flashlight. But then as they've gotten older and it's become a little more intense, we've kind of dismissed the flashlights. And so we play hide-and-go-seek in the dark, mostly in the winter, in the summer, because, you know, you can play in the winter at like 3.30. But um, in the... 
we play and the house is pitch black and we'll light like one candle somewhere. So there's just a, a little bit of light. One person will be it, everyone else will hide and then the person has to sort of find the people before they get back to base. And every now and then you come up with a genius hiding spot. And I'll never forget this one moment. I'm hiding in the corner of the shower and I'm tucked way back in the corner. And just the way the light worked, the person coming in could see nothing, but you could see the sh- their shadow sort of approaching you. And so I'm tucked in the corner of the shower and here comes my daughter. And, and, and you know, because she can't see anything, she's kind of groping around the, the you know, and she's feeling the wall and I'm, I'm crouched, right? She's touching the walls all around me, but never touches me, turns and leaves. I'm telling you, that's like the biggest victory ever in hide and seek. <laughs> Even at 40 years old, the exhilaration of that moment for me is like really high. It's just so fun to be like, right there, they can't see you. Not so good. And we have this image, that's kind of God. Like, we're trying to find him. He's kind of hiding from us. And, and Jesus comes and he says, that is not the Lord at all. Jesus comes and he says, I've come to reveal the Father. I've come to, to show the Father. I've come to sort of offer uh, the kingdom to the world. And I want people. In fact, Jesus says this, if you seek me, you will find me. The reason he says this is a wicked generation He's saying, if based on what you've seen, your heart still isn't convinced, you're still not willing to trust me, to to reach out to me, to understand who I am and that I bring the kingdom of God, if that's the case, then there's something wicked and evil in your heart that is just preventing you from seeing. You do not actually want to see the truth. That's the accusation here. You see, Jesus says... You know, in the past, they had very little to go off of, and people still found the Lord. You, you, you have the Son of God in your midst. You have wonderful miracles in your midst. He might say to us today, you have the church, you have the scriptures, you have the Holy Spirit. Friends, I guess the question I would ask you this morning is this. Is there something in your heart? Is there some sin? Is there some evil is there some selfishness is there some pride is there something wicked in your heart that is preventing you from finding jesus from reaching out to jesus from embracing the kingdom that he offers you maybe you're here today and there's something going on and there's something in your life and it's wretched and it's ugly and it's dark And it's preventing you from living the kingdom life that God wants. It's preventing you from from turning your life, shifting your allegiance over fully to Jesus. I encourage you to explore that this morning. Because our story this morning talks about repentance and it gives us two examples of people who repented and we learn some things about repentance. We learn why sometimes repentance is hard, but we also learn why repentance is so powerful. And the first example we're given is this woman, the Queen of Sheba. It says that she will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them for why she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. Now there's Jesus, right? And then the queen of the south is this woman. She's actually the queen of Sheba. Um, it's a, a, a huge kingdom to the south uh, of Israel. And her story is found in 1 Kings 10. And if we summarize it, it goes like this. This is a woman who is extremely powerful. She's extremely wealthy and wise and understanding. And she had so much in this world. And yet she was a seeker of truth. 
And she hears about this man, Solomon, this man who's the king of the Hebrews, and he's been given marvelous wisdom from God. And because she longs to understand who God is and his will and ways, she leaves her home, and she travels all the way from Sheba to visit Solomon. And before we get too far, you have to understand what a significant sacrifice that would be. This would have been a very difficult, arduous journey in her day. She would have traveled through foreign lands, enemy lands to get there. She would have left her kingdom unattended. Monarchs, by the way, in, this day, in that day and age, did not leave their kingdoms unattended because that's when, that's when revolts would rise up. That's when you would lose your political power when you were far away from home for long periods. But this woman goes, and she is willing to risk everything and give up a whole heck of a lot, not to mention the extravagant gifts she offers Solomon, just so that she can get a taste of who God might be. And at the end of this story, through Solomon, she experiences God and she worships Yahweh, the one true God. You see, friends, the first thing we learn about repentance is this. To walk the pathway into the kingdom, to take that step of turning your life, changing your allegiances from the things of this world to the things of God, it always takes risk And it always takes sacrifice. There is never, never repentance without risk and sacrifice. You see, sometimes, friends, I think we make the gospel too easy. We try so hard to make Jesus so accessible, so easy to receive. We love to talk about how Jesus will love you and embrace you and receive you. And we never talk about what he would require of you. We always talk about how like, life in the kingdom, to embrace the kingdom, means turning to Jesus, this loving, wonderful, righteous, holy, merciful God. But we never talk about what we must turn from, what we must give up. And I was asking myself this week, I was thinking, if that's our gospel, if our gospel is so easy, so simple, so accessible, is that the same gospel that Jesus preached? When Jesus offered the kingdom to people, when he invited them to follow him, did he sort of do it in a way that said, like, it's not going to cost you anything. It's going to be real simple, real easy. Or, or, was there always a challenge when Jesus said, follow me? Well, I was thinking about this, and I just started looking at some test cases. So look with me. The disciples, when they were called to follow Jesus, did they have to leave anything? they have to turn away from anything? they have to walk away from their livelihood, from the family business, from the very thing that gave them identity? What about Zacchaeus, you know, the wee little man, the tax collector guy who was partnering with the Romans, the enemy of God's people, to, to overcharge his people and get wealthy? Jesus engages him and embraces him and offers the kingdom to him. And does he just sort of waltz into the kingdom and just keep on marching with his life the same way it was before? No. No. When he turns his life over to God, when he shifts his allegiance, we're told this. He gives half of his possessions to the poor. And then he says this. And, and, if I have cheated on anybody, if I've cheated them out of anything, I will pay them back four times the amount. You see, it cost him something. He had, to, he had to give up something in order to embrace something. And, and then there's the woman caught in adultery. The very last thing that Jesus says to the woman caught in adultery, he offers her grace and mercy and love. But then what does he say? Go and leave your life of sin. You see, take your identity that was based over here in this thing, this worldly thing, leave that. 
leave that identity behind and now embrace a new identity, a new hope, a new peace in Jesus. You see, there's always something to receive from Jesus, but there's also something to leave. And then finally, maybe the greatest example of all, the rich young ruler, the young man who comes to Christ and says, tell me how to get eternal life. Tell me how to live eternally in this kingdom with God forever. And they talk about the law and he says, I got that nailed. And then Jesus says these words to him. It says, looking at him, Jesus looking at him, it says, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all your possessions and give them to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. Give up your security. Give up your safety net. Give up this thing that has sort of formed your identity and made you who you are and that gives you security and peace in this world. Sacrifice your allegiance to your wealth so that you can have full allegiance to me. Now, just think about this for a minute. What if that was the gospel we offered here on Sunday? What if we preached the gospel and I said, all right, who wants to follow Jesus and step into the kingdom? Like, yeah, sounds awesome. Life, abundance, joy, hope. But guess what? To do it, you've got to sell everything you own and give it to the poor. Who wants in? Anyone? Tree, thank you. The first service, no one raised their hand except for the interpreter who was mimicking me. It was Michelle, and so she was doing that. And I was like, Michelle does. She wants to sell all of her stuff. We'll talk after service, right? Yeah. So there's this, there's this turning away from something to something. There's this thing, these things that we hold on to, and we're supposed to release them so that we can grab a hold of Jesus. You know, this past week, our elementary students were at day camp. Um, they were at... Uh, Canyon View Camp, and my two oldest kids got a chance to go um, down to camp. And uh, as a part of camp, they they had the zip line. And I wasn't down there, but one day, Pastor Paul videoed my oldest daughter doing the zip line. And she's up on the zip line thing. It's pretty high and long, and she's up there. And she kind of, I think, must have inherited her dad's fear of heights on some level. Is she in here, Skylar? Are you over there somewhere? Oh, there you are. Oh, good. Is it okay if I tell this story? I hope so, because I didn't talk to you. But, um... Uh, <laughs> I'm not used to her being a middle schooler now. She's most of the time over there, so I can just talk about her freely. But she's going, about ready to go down the zip line, and she jumps off the zip line, and the zip line kind of goes, zzzz, and then you kind of go back, and it's kind of this big U, and you go back and forth. And Pastor Paul is videoing, and he sends me the video. And apparently there's a kid standing right next to him, and every single time Skylar goes by on the zip line, this other student, who I never see, but you can hear his voice, yells, Go upside down! And she goes, zzz. He's like, Go upside down! He just keeps yelling, Go upside down! Because apparently on the zip line, you can, like, flip yourself over and literally go upside down, feet in the air, head down, and it's a little scarier. It's a little more exciting. It's a little more of an exuberant ride. And after like the first or second time through, I can tell she wants to go upside down. I saw this video. You didn't know that. Um, And she wants to go upside down. The problem is, she's got like a vice grip on that rope that's holding the thing. And so now they're telling her like, throw your legs up and kick your head back. And she's trying to throw her legs up and kick her head back to go upside down, except for she's not going. Why? Because she's holding on to that rope. And then the kid starts yelling, let go of the rope. And she's like, no way, you know. It's like she keeps trying to, she really wants to go upside down, but she just can't get herself to let go of the rope. Maybe next time, honey, sorry. But, um, and and I'm watching that video and I'm thinking to myself, you know, so many of us live our Christian lives in that way. 
So many of us, we so long to experience the kingdom. We so long to fully embrace Jesus as Lord and God and Savior. And, he, and Jesus is saying, go upside down. The ride is amazing. The kingdom's phenomenal. It's a little scary and risky, but it's going to be so cool. Do it. Go with me upside down. But we can't bring ourselves to let go of the things from this world that we're holding on to. Holding on to anything today? Holding on to anything in this world? It gives you a lot of peace. It gives you a sense of security. It gives you maybe some identity or meaning or, or purpose. And so your allegiances, your allegiance is to those things. And, you, and everything in you is saying you can't let go of that. It's who you are. What will you do without? What would happen if you would ever release that? And because you won't let go of that thing, you'll never go upside down. Friends, what's God asking you to sacrifice? What's he's asking asking you to give up? What is God wanting you to let go of so that you can enter more deeply and fully into a place where you're relying on him, where you're experiencing the kingdom, where you're flying upside down? That's the, the queen of Sheba. The second example we're given is the Ninevites. And in case you don't know the story, God asked Jonah to go and preach to this group of people called the Ninevites. They were an awful, um, heinous, evil people that did horrific things. And Jonah does not want to go. But he doesn't want to go for the reasons you might think he doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to go because he's scared. He doesn't, not, he doesn't want, want to go because he thinks they'll reject him. The reason Jonah does not want to go to the Ninevites is why? Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't want them to repent. He doesn't want them to get saved. He doesn't want them to like enter into the kingdom and life and abundance. He hates these people. These are awful, wretched people. They don't deserve the love and grace of God. And so he's like, God, you might bring them into your kingdom. You might bring them into a relationship with you, but I want none of it. I will not go. And so, you know, he kind of throws a little temper tantrum and stubborn and God eventually has him swallowed by this fish and spit out on the shore. And the message there is like, Jonah, we're going to get there one way or another. Are you ready to kind of join in? Um, and when God does that, eventually you, you relent. And so Jonah goes reluctantly to preach repentance to the Ninevites. And the point of this, of, of Jesus bringing this up in this, in this section is simply to say this. These Ninevites, these wretched, awful, horrific people, completely turn their lives around. They repent. They repent of their evil deeds, their evil lives, their actions, their attitudes, and they, they give themselves to the worship of Yahweh. They, they, they turn their lives over. And all they had was the message of a pouty, reluctant prophet. And they still radically transformed and changed their lives. What Jesus is saying here to the early church and to you and me is, you've been given the Holy Spirit. You've been given the scriptures. You've been given the death and resurrection of Jesus. They only had Jonah and they radically changed their lives. You've been given all that. And you kind of maybe sometimes change your life a little. You see? That's why they'll stand up and condemn you. That's why the church is being challenged here. Friends, there's a call that Jesus is offering to us in this moment. Make a radical change. Are there places in your life that need to be completely turned around, upended, redirected, priorities, ways of thinking, 
actions, the way you spend your time, your money, do, do all those things radically align up with the kingdom or do you need to make some major changes? You see, the Ninevites did it and all they had was Jonah. You've got Jesus, the Christ. Why don't we look more radically different? It's because we don't understand what it means to repent. Because we're still holding on. We're not willing to radically shift our allegiances to God. And that's why the Ninevites, who only had Jonah, will speak into us. You see, God doesn't want to just do sort of minor search. You know, repentance for us is something like this. Lord, I repent of eating half gallons of ice cream at night. I need to turn from that. And this is real serious for me, so don't laugh. I need to turn from that, especially the Tillamook stuff that's not low fat, and I need to at least go to the no sugar because I just need to turn because it's not good for me. And God says, that's fine if you need to repent from some little things, but where's the radical life transformation? Where's the radical life shift in, um, from coming to Christ? Or, 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 do you pretty much look like everyone else in the world? Right? There's a challenge here. You're going to get radical. You know, when, when we lived in Ventura... The home we owned there had a, a fairly good-sized hole in one of the walls in the kitchen. It happened to be the wall you would see when you first walked in to the house. There's the kitchen, there's a wall, big hole. And in this hole were some wires hanging down. At the end of this, these wires were a little phone jack. And the phone jack actually worked remarkably. And so everything was okay. As long as you plugged the phone in there and hung it on the wall, the phone would actually cover the hole. And so for the first few years we lived there, they had this phone, it was on the wall, covering the hole. And eventually my wife decided, like, I don't really want the phone there. We're going to move the phone over here. And so she took the phone away, and now there's this hole. And she kind of gave me the, the, the task of saying, hey, figure out what to do with this hole. So normally in that moment, you would just get one of those plates, and you'd screw it in, and it would sort of sit there. And it wouldn't look great, but at least it would look clean and sort of fixed. The problem in this case was there was nothing to f- attach the plate to, and the hole was actually a little bit bigger than one of those plates. So it's like the plate's not going to work. So I was thinking to myself, you know what I really need to do is I just need to buy one of those patching kits. I need to patch the hole and then paint it, and I'll be all set. But we didn't have any more paint. The color that we had painted the kitchen... We didn't have it anymore. It had been a while, and so it was going to be real tough to match. And so now, to fix this hole, I was going to not only have to patch this hole, I was going to have to repaint the entire kitchen. It was a fairly complicated process. And so I'm thinking about it, and I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, you know, here's what I'm going to do. What, what did I do? You know exactly what I did. I hung a picture right over that hole. I found a little like picture up in the attic that we weren't using, and tech, 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 hang, covered, Done. I mean, and just so you know, it was heinous. It was like in the most random, awkward place. She'd walk in, and now instead of a phone, you'd just see this random picture kind of off center and down and to the left. And Amy kind of gives me the, like, the, like, really, honey? I know you're a pastor, and you're pretty much worthless around the house. And at this point, I still didn't know Ted, because we didn't live here yet, so I couldn't call him. It's like, really? And I was like, honey, no, 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 just, just, it's really busy at church. I'll only leave it this way for a little while. Soon I'll get to, like, patching and painting and stuff. You know how many years that picture hung in that kitchen over that hole? That picture's still hanging in that, yeah, totally. Because the guy who lives there now, his wife's telling him, and he's saying, wait, you know, no, I don't know, he probably did it because I think he's a contractor or something. But, but, um, but friends, so many of us, that's what we do. 
We don't understand repentance. We don't understand radical transformation. Letting God do the hard, internal work of transferring our lives. And so we just hang pictures. Not in the kitchen of our house, but over the holes of our souls. But over the places in our lives where there's sin and brokenness. And we consider letting God do some transforming work and partnering with him to, you know, patch and repaint and make it right. But that's just too hard. It's too risky. It's too difficult. And so instead, we just settle for hanging a picture. And some of us, we hung those pictures years and years and years ago. And we've been telling ourselves for just that long, I'm going to get to that someday. I'm going to let God go to work on that someday. I'm going to partner with God to really dig in and do the repair work needed someday. But there's still pictures hanging there. Friends, you got any, any pictures hanging in your life? Any places where there's just unresolved sin? Places where you still have, you know, security based in the world, safety based in the world, where you're still kind of aligned and living for the world, maybe even like a sinful habit or behavior or pattern that does not line up with the kingdom life at all, but it's kind of tucked away, it's kind of hidden. You got a picture hanging over it. Maybe... Maybe it's time to start pulling a picture or two off the wall. Jesus says, repent. Pull a picture off the wall. Let God go to work. And let's get busy experiencing and living the kind of kingdom life that God so longs for us to live. Jesus says, see to it then that the light within you is not darkness. That you don't have the sense that your life is filled with light, but the truth of the matter is you just got a bunch of pictures covering up all the darkness that's deep down inside. You see, Jesus wants to do a deep internal transformation of your soul. Not just sort of patch or cover up the exterior of your life. Friends, listen to these words again, and I'll, I'll close with this today. The kingdom is available. This new upside-down Zipline life is available, but, but, but it takes repentance. It takes a turning. It takes the risky move of letting God transform your reliances and allegiances and securities from the things of this world to him. All the preliminaries have been taken care of and the rule of God is now accessible to you. Review your plans for living and base your life on this remarkable new opportunity. Let's pray. Father, this this morning, I pray that you'd reveal those places where we're holding on. Show us, Lord, show us the places where we've just got pictures hanging over stuff. Give us the courage to let go. Give us the courage to let you do the work that needs to be done. That we might truly be people who live in and for your kingdom in this world. May your kingdom advance in this church this morning as you work and convict and heal. May we be a place, Lord, that helps helps one another patch up holes and let go of ropes and truly experience you. That's our prayer today. And we ask that you would get all the glory for it. In Jesus' name.